Hey everyone, this is Cobain the Christian. A lot of people have asked me to continue my discussion of the relationship of the Christian idea of the devil to the serpent that we meet in Genesis chapter 3. I'm glad that people are so enthusiastic about this because I find this a really, really interesting subject as well. And because I want to really go all out on, on these videos, I've kind of uh, have put off making another one. But, you know, you got to do what you got to do at some point. Before we get into the main subject of the video, I do want to mention my Patreon. Um, if you enjoy these videos on a regular basis, I ask that you please consider becoming a patron. Uh, there is some exclusive content, but the biggest uh, bonus, I suppose, would be if you are tier three, and then you get guaranteed an hour or more of one-on-one -on -one discussion with me on a topic of your choice or topics of your choice um, per month uh, if you sign up. Uh, so please do uh, consider that. Also, I, it will enable me to phase out advertisements entirely. I'm not sure if anyone has noticed, but I have begun to phase out advertisements on certain kinds of videos, uh, especially those advertisements which interrupt the content of the video. So please do consider that. YouTube memberships are also available if uh, uh, you would prefer that platform, though they're more expensive because YouTube takes a larger cut. Also, in terms of housekeeping, on Wednesday, uh, beginning around 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we're going to have the weekly uh, Q&A session. So if you super chat, you will definitely get your question answered, and you might get your question answered even if you don't super chat. Uh, also, I wanted to mention, because some people have asked, that if you want to make a one-time contribution, just uh, send me, just put a comment, tell me you want to do that, and I'll give you my uh, uh, Venmo information. Uh, so that is the housekeeping stuff for today. Uh, let's get into the main subject of discussion for today. So just to recap what we are arguing against, the typical line that you will hear today, especially among liberal biblical scholars and their partisans, is that there is no evidence that the serpent of Genesis chapter 3 is anything other than a serpent. And I think this strikes people as profoundly troubling, because when we read the text, it just seems obvious that the figure here is the devil. But it's not even that it seems obvious, it's that we have never asked ourselves the question, is this figure actually the devil? And it seems to many people, when the question is raised, they reread the story and they say, well, what reason do I have for holding the serpent to be Satan? And I think what troubles people, and what certainly troubled me at one point, is how deep and profound the assumptions they are making about the text really are. That's something which is seemingly so obvious in terms of the question of the serpent's identity wasn't even understood to be a question before it was raised by other biblical critics. I think there are other issues like that in relation to Old Testament interpretation, one of them being the question of whether the God of Israel has a body or is an embodied being. We've discussed that, or I've discussed that on some of my uh, blogs. I've made a video called Abraham, God of Abraham and Aristotle, which gets into that, by the way. If you hear a dog snoring, that's because my dog is snoring. You know, um, I don't mean to be uh, 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 seedy here, but uh, if I get <laughs> more contributions, uh, I'm, one of the things I'm going to invest in is, is a more quality mic so that we can avoid this uh, in the future. Um, anyway, 
I just want to let you know what, what, what that sound is. Uh, anyway, I think that the case that the serpent is Satan is overwhelming and decisive, but it's an important question that we ask because it helps frame our mode of interpreting the Bible, and it helps us define precisely what we mean by Satan. And what I argued in the last video is that we need to get over this assumption, which is implicit in our minds, that Satan is somehow the devil's personal name, or at least that it's more primarily associated with him than are his other titles, like the dragon, like uh, uh, like the devil, uh, and like the nakash. Satan is simply one of many titles which describes a figure of supernatural origin who is present in God's heavenly court, who rebelled against the God of heaven and earth, and now attempts to oversee a conspiracy which will lead to the destruction of the creation and of the human family. And this figure is, in fact, known all over the world. There are Native American traditions which describe death as coming into the world through the activity of a great magician. In a Persian tradition, you have an enemy of the god of heaven. Now, some people will say that, well, Zoroastrianism is dualistic, these two equal and opposite powers, but it is a mistake to retroject later theology that we get from the Sassanid period into the earlier Persian traditions because they're separated by eight centuries and the figure of Zoroaster himself does not come up until the third century AD when what we call uh, Zoroastrianism is documented in the fifth century BC. The kings of Persia are identified as righteous Gentiles throughout the scriptures. Anyway, you have the idea of a supernatural enemy of mankind who is at war with the God of heaven and earth. You see his propaganda in certain uh, other cultures. For example, at Ugarit, there's a text called the Baal Cycle, which describes how Baal, a young upstart on the heavenly council, rebelled against a tyrannical deity, that deity who had been responsible for the creation of heaven and earth. And he successfully rebelled, and now he was enthroned as the Lord of the council, unlike the one who preceded him. Likewise, we see in various Hellenistic traditions, Zeus is understood to be the head and lord of the divine council, but he had not always been so. He rebelled against, in some traditions, Uranus or Uranus, who in turn had rebelled against a deity which had preceded him. So the idea of a war in heaven, which, uh, was, be which was playing out on the stage of history, but which was transcendent in relation to the stage of history, is known from many traditions around the world. And the idea that this war involved a conflict between the creator and an upstart deity on the council, and by deity, divine being, we are referring simply to a member of that realm. Any creature of the heavenly realm is called in this context a deity. We would call them angels using contemporary language. But there's dispute about the nature of that war, who was victorious, whether the war is still ongoing, and whether the upstart was the good guy. You see in various Gnostic traditions in the Christian era that, uh, that the serpent is understood to be a heroic figure. You have the lie of Genesis 3 being presented as the truth. He was the one who gave wisdom to mankind when the creator was attempting to hoard it all for himself. 
We talked about how the primary sin, as James Jordan puts it, is this idea that God does not have your best intentions in mind. What the devil says to Eve is, you will not die, but you will be as gods. And indeed, in a way, that is true. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the tree which gives you the wisdom to understand the inner nature of the creation. And understanding the inner nature of the creation gives you the capacity to manage it, to reshape it, to restructure it, which after all was what God wanted. He called man to exercise dominion, to subdue the earth, to transfigure it from glory to glory. And because the forms of, cre of creatures in here in the life of God, this is why Moses sees the goodness of the Lord, that goodness according to whose likeness God called various creatures good in Genesis chapter 1. Moses sees that goodness of the Lord when God reclaims to him his name, and God is going around naming things in Genesis 1. Adam, his first uh, lesson is to go and name the various creatures. Uh, so after fashion, he's telling the truth. You will be as gods. Adam and Eve are then given robes, but they're given robes which they have to acquire through death. We see in Genesis 3 a anticipation of something which is in Genesis 4. I've heard some people say that the notion that the garments worn by Adam and Eve are sacrificial garments is totally lacking basis in the biblical texts. And that is such an amazing example of how people can miss things which are just obvious in the text because consider what the next story is. The next story is a conflict between two kinds of offerings. One of them is a vegetable offering. The other is a blood offering. And the offering which succeeds before the God of heaven is the blood offering. Likewise, in Genesis chapter 3, they first attempt to cover themselves with vegetable garments, that is, with the garments of fig leaves. And then God makes them good garments, which are from animal skins. But these animal skins represent the corruption into which man had descended. If you look at Leviticus 8 to 16, we have a detailed explication and recapitulation of the curses of Genesis chapter 3. Leviticus 8 to 10 begins with the consecration of the tabernacle, which is a new garden of Eden. The creation of Adam and Eve is echoed in the consecration of the high priests and his assistants. In fact, you have the language of a helpmate being used to the high priest and his assistants in Exodus chapter 31, which gives us the sixth slot in the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle. Then in Leviticus 10, uh, Nadab and Abihu, they bring strange fire before the Lord, that is, they worship in a way that he had not authorized, that he had not commanded. This leads to their death. And after this, there is a way that God provides to manage his presence in the midst of a sick world. God being God cannot coexist with death. And this isn't just some like personal you know, preference on his part. It's simply ontologically the case. Death being what it is, cannot exist in relation and in the presence uh, of God being who he is because he is life himself and just as a square is a square and by that squareness cannot be a circle so also God being God cannot coexist with death one or the other is going to push the other 
out. And man, as the Lord of creation, the microcosm of the world, who is the generations, the son of the heavens and the earth, man being the capstone of the world, the direction which he chooses will determine who will ultimately reign over the world, whether it is God or uh, or death. And so in Leviticus 11 to uh, 15, what we have is we have an ordered recapitulation of the curses of Genesis chapter 3. We find, for example, that the curse on childbearing is associated with the purity laws having to do with the uh, uh, impurity one contracts by giving birth to children in Leviticus 12. And this is quite interesting because when Paul speaks of death spreading to all men, talking about death as a kind of contagion, he's drawing from this language of Leviticus chapter 12. The reason that a woman is unclean for 80 days if she has a female child and 40 days if she has a male child is simply because the male child is circumcised and that blood offering reduces the amount of impurity contracted because impurity has to do with death. We see also in Leviticus chapter 11 the only other use of the word translated on your belly other than Genesis chapter 3, which is funny because these are supposed to be completely different authors. This is one of many ways we know that's just nonsense. Uh, so we have the serpent being associated with death because as you are come into contact with serpentine creatures, you contract impurity. And all ritual impurity means is that you cannot have access to the uh, a liturgy of the tabernacle and then later the temple. So everything here is designed to do what God did in Genesis 3. When God gave Adam and Eve garments of skin, it was both a curse but a way of managing that curse. It was a way of managing man's continued existence in the midst of a world which had begun to descend into death. I don't think for a moment that the devil suspected that God was actually going to continue his program. It was an unbelievable act of grace on God's part. The devil was projecting when he said, you will not die, you shall be as gods. God's just trying to hide his true intentions from you because he's selfish, he hoards life for himself. The devil cannot understand a psyche which is not like his own. And then ultimately in uh, Leviticus chapter 16, you have the Day of Atonement where the high priest is given vestments representing the glory and beauty, which is the ultimate destiny of the human family. And that corresponds to God giving garments in Genesis chapter uh, uh, 3 and 4. So we see that Genesis 3 has a complicated relationship with the rest of the Hebrew Bible. It is not a text which stands on its own two legs and has no relationship to the rest of the Hebrew Bible. That is a superficial reading of the text. In order to understand how scripture relates to scripture, you have to understand it cumulatively. Because Genesis 3 is, all things considered, quite a short passage. So the way that the prophets will echo it is through the mediation of these purity laws of Leviticus. The short text of Genesis 3 is opened up and uh, explained in much more precision and detail with the detailed purity laws that are given in Leviticus 8 uh, or 11 to 15. And then the prophets of Israel will use the language of purity and impurity to describe God's intent to fill all creation with his glory. So in Zechariah chapter 14, we see that God purifies and consecrates the entire creation through the river of life that flows out from the holy city. Same thing happens in Ezekiel 47. The curse of uh, death is represented in the Dead Sea. I mean, you hardly need to 
have an explanation for why that is associated with death. But the Dead Sea is actually created by the catastrophe of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is actually the destruction of four of the five cities of the plain. Isaiah 19, describing the Messianic Age, describes a situation in which four out of five cities are redeemed, which is the reversal of what happened in Genesis 19. But then in Ezekiel 47, we've got the river of life that flows out from the temple, so it carries the divine presence, and it gives life to the fish. And the fish represent the Gentiles, so it's the conversion of the Gentiles. This is why the apostles are associated with fish. They're fishermen. Jesus says you will be fishers of men. And because land represents Israel and sea represents the nations, fish represents the converted nations. But we see that evil reaches its maximum in the flood and in Sodom and Gomorrah, which is a story which echoes the story of the flood. And God takes those most corrupt of people and heals the nations. So if the most corrupt civilization can be redeemed, according to the logic of the prophets, uh, anyone could be redeemed. Okay, so that's, you know, the, the bird's eye view, but might as well start talking about what we actually are making this video about. Uh, Let's consider Nakash first. Now, Nakash, we talked about it last time. It means serpent, but it also means bright. That is why the king of Babylon, or the king of Babel, in Isaiah chapter 14, is called the day star, the son of the morning. It's why Leviathan, the dragon, who's actually called a Nakash in Isaiah 27, he is said to have eyes like the dawn in Job chapter 41. And the uh, figure of Leviathan at the end of the book, of course, matches the figure of Satan, or the accuser, at the beginning of the book. He is called Satan, the accuser, when the title associated with the conception of the Heavenly Council as God's courtroom is being described. He is called Baal when we're talking about his role as inspiring idolatry. In Deuteronomy 32, let's not forget, uh, the gods of the nations are explicitly called demons. In Leviticus chapter 17, we have an explicit reference to goat demons. Okay, So in Leviticus 16, You've got a goat for the Lord, and then you have a goat which is sent out to Azazel. And Azazel is understood by many ancient authors to be a reference to Satan himself, and I happen to agree with that. And Azazel also means destruction, okay? So the uh, realm which is made for the devil and his angels, this is the grave. The hell is the second death. It's the eternal inheritance of the grave. So it is destruction in the most ultimate sense. The goat which is sent to destruction represents those who are expelled from the city of God. One day I'll make a video just on Leviticus 16 because it's it has so many important things related to the whole of biblical theology. And uh, accentuating and underscoring this association is Leviticus 17. Next chapter, you have goat demons. Okay, so idolatry is associated with Satan under his title of Baal because Baal is a... Uh, a an imitation of the Lord. Baal is understood as the Lord of the covenant. He's understood as the divine husband, just as the God of Israel is the true Lord of the covenant and divine husband. Uh, Baal, remember, and Ugarit is the one who rebels against the God of heaven and earth successfully, according to the satanic propaganda, but we know that that is just propaganda. Uh, and just as we have seed of the serpent, the first representative of whom is called Cain, uh, just as we have the seed of the serpent in Genesis 3 to 4, we read about the sons of Bel. You know, Bel, remember, is a way of talking about Baal. And Jesus call, 
Beth's the devil, Beelzebub. So the sons of Belial. It's often translated worthless men, but that totally obscures a very important aspect of the text. And Numbers, uh, because Numbers 25, we are told that Israel played the whore with Baal of Peor. So we have this theme running throughout the scriptures. Uh, now the Nakash is a way of referring to him as the preeminent celestial being. When God made the world, God created it under the administration of the angelic powers. Okay, Psalm 8, for a little while lower than the angels, but man will be crowned with glory and honor. The book of Revelation, we, re we meet 24 angelic elders, so there are 24 angels which then will uh, act throughout the book and walk off stage until the Holy of Holies is empty in Revelation chapters 15 and 16. Uh, the 24 angelic elders correspond to the 24 chief priests because the priests, they fly around in the tabernacle. We've talked about before how inward is upward, right? So you have two golden poles which go horizontally throughout the, through the tabernacle. And the point here is to underscore the symbolic association of inward with upward. It is as if the whole tabernacle is being carried in a vertical direction on these golden poles. And you have the tassels, which are on the garments of the priests, and they are called, literally, wings. Because all Israel is a priestly nation, their tassel is blue, because the sky is blue, what do you know? And that blue tassel is called a wing. So when a priest goes into the sanctuary, he is flying upwards. He is ascending through the clouds into the presence of God. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the divine council, and you have angels, the seraphim, burning ones. Remember, seraph also means serpent, and yet it can also be rendered burning. And the, seraph, the seraphim have wings on them, six-winged, many-eyed. They cry, holy, 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 is the Lord God of hosts. And Isaiah himself is called to be a member of that heavenly council. He is filled with the spirit. He is filled with the spirit through eating a burning coal. The seraphim are burning, so Isaiah now becomes a seraph of himself. And he thus uses the title, Holy One of Israel. That's a famous Isaianic title for the God of Israel because he is like a seraphim himself. So Nachash is called the wisest of the beasts. Now, that the language that is used here of the Nakash, uh, it both can associate him with the beasts, but it could also mean that he is set over in relation to them. He is the one who exercises dominion over the beasts of the field. And I think that both things are kind of going on. So the first administration of the world is under the angels, but the first administration of the world is also associated with animals. The first administration of the world corresponds to the three phases of the cherubim, of the ox, representing the priestly period, the lion, representing the kingly period, and the eagle, representing the prophetic period. When King Solomon builds his water stands, there are two of the cherubim faces that are uh, uh, engraved onto it, the ox and the lion, because you haven't reached the prophetic period yet. The prophets, they go from place to place. Jesus says the one born of the spirit, which is what makes you a prophet, blows where he wishes. And so we read, Elisha goes and anoints the king of Syria. The prophets are writing letters to the nations. Elijah moves place to place. The king cannot catch him. Uh, in the anointing process of a priest, you anoint the ear because a 
priest just hears what God says and does exactly what he tells him to do. Then you have the hand which is anointed because the king is an actor. He shapes and remolds the world. And then finally you have the foot which is anointed corresponding to the prophetic period because the prophet is always moving in from place to place just as we read in Ezekiel. Ezekiel is picked up and flies here, there, and everywhere. And then finally you have the fourth face or in a, another mode of speaking, the fourth face is present in all three other faces, okay? because man is a microcosm of the world. That's how Ezekiel describes it. Both modes of description are there in the scriptures. But the first faces, the animal faces, are both the animal faces and they are linked with the angelic period. We have angels being associated with dragons. We have angels being associated with uh, um, birds. Uh, there are birds dwelling in the holy place of the temple. They're described in the book of Psalms. So we do have an association between angels and animals. But I think the principal accent of the text, and I could be convinced otherwise, but I think both elements are there. But the principal one is that the devil, the bright one, is the preeminent angelic being who is set over the creation at this point in time. So he holds the keys to the world. Adam is a spiritual child. Adam is not yet ready to manage the world. The world is managed through the angelic realm, headed by one whom we might call Lucifer, which just means bright one. It's not a personal name, but we can call him that just for the sake of simplicity. Now, when he rebels against God, and I think I've talked before in uh, one of my series of videos on how I read Genesis 2 to 3, um, I think Genesis 3 actually describes the moment of the devil's rebellion. Now, you could say this is just when he first acts in rebellion. It's not when his mind first went bad. I, I don't think there's that much difference textually between one or the other option, uh, but the devil is then cursed at the end of Genesis 3. Now, I've argued before that the curses here have to be understood as prophetic. So when, uh, when God says, you shall eat dust, I do not believe he is describing something which is going to happen immediately. Rather, he is saying that the devil, preeminent among these heavenly beings, is going to be expelled from the heavenly council and be placed at the lowest part of creation, and that is the grave. Uh, we read about this in Psalm 82. I will mention this just in a few moments, just to keep uh, everything in its proper order. But when, when it says, you shall eat dust, I think that this is going to be fulfilled at the same time that the prophecy of the seed of the woman is fulfilled, because it is the seed of the woman who is going to place him under the earth. The seed of the woman shall place his foot on the head of the serpent. So one is below the other. One of them is standing upright with his foot on top of the head of the other. Now, if you study traditions from peoples around the world, you will realize that there are many, many, many memories of uh, this prophecy, okay? So the idea that there is a heroic figure who will place his foot on the head of the person who brought death into the world, that is a very widespread tradition throughout the nations of the world. And there are various elements of it which find their way into various mythological traditions. You read about this in various Old World Indian traditions as well as, in fact, uh, New World Indian traditions. But another point we talked about last time is the etymological relationship uh, between, or not etymological, but there's a pun which is made between the word naked 
and the uh, uh, one who is called the wisest uh, of these creatures. So one is in contrast to the other. So what is the nakedness all about? Well, the nakedness means that Adam and Eve are not yet vested with the authority to exercise judgment over the world. They are meant to grow up into glory. At the end of the book, book of Genesis, Joseph is given various robes which represent his authority. Pharaoh gives him a robe. Uh, Jacob gives him a robe. Adam and Eve were meant to eventually be robed in glory. We read about this in the book of Revelation, where the righteous deeds or acts of the saints are their robes of glory. It's not as if we go back to nakedness. We simply wear the vestments that we were meant to wear in the beginning before we stole robes. Now, it's interesting that the righteous deeds or acts of the saints are called their robes of glory. First of all, this this refutes the attempt to apply um, the text from Isaiah which calls our uh, our works filthy rags to all human deeds. I mean, I think that just misses the point entirely. The filthy rags are not good works, okay? The filthy rags are bad works. Good works are garments of glory and beauty. And if, it, if the works which are garments of glory in the book of Revelation are the deeds of the saints, well, it suggests the deeds of the saints are the same as the deeds of God because the Holy Spirit works or acts in, uh, in the life of the children of God. So the serpent has the robe of authority. He has the garment which represents the administration of the world. He has wisdom because wisdom is associated with the knowledge of good and evil. Now remember, in Exodus 33 and 34, Moses sees the goodness of the Lord. The goodness of the Lord describes the Lord's being in his glory, the paradigm imprinted onto creaturely modes of life. The goodness of the Lord means that God is the yardstick, which measures the perfection of individual creatures. A tree is a good tree to the extent that it matches the prototype of that tree existing in the mind of God. That is the aspect according to which the life of God is called goodness. Evil means that you understand the nature of a thing such that you are able to apprehend by divine intuition the purposes for which it might be used. You might take a piece of wood and you understand that wood and everything around it sufficiently so that you say, oh, this wood is good for this purpose that I am going to use it for, or it is not good for this purpose that I am going to use it for. So in that sense, the knowledge of good and evil is both a way of referring to royal authority, 1 Kings chapter 3, wisdom to discern between good and evil, and it is what scholars call a merism. So you have two poles, opposite poles on a spectrum. It includes by implication everything else in between. So it is the knowledge to know everything. When Solomon acquires wisdom, he studies the whole world. Beasts are brought to him from the ends of the earth. He has first brought beasts, and then he has brought a woman, the Queen of Sheba. Now, I'm not saying the Queen of Sheba was his, was his wife, only that the narrative is written in parallel. And then Solomon is tempted by idolatry corresponding to the serpent of Genesis 3. And like Adam, Solomon fails the test. So one of many things which shows that idolatry is in part what's going on here. And Deuteronomy 32 connects the idolatry of Israel to, what do you know, uh, serpents, the venom of asps. The venom of asps is like the wine of Sodom. 
so the serpent is the one who has authority here. And we are shown later in scripture that he is, in fact, a kind of royal figure. Because when King Saul is anointed to rule over Israel, he then has to prove his royal jurisdiction by fighting a figure who is called Nahash, meaning serpent. And then when David does the same, who does he fight? He fights Goliath, who is a Nephilim. A Nephilim is one of these figures produced by the sorts of unions we read about in Genesis chapter 6. Father Stephen DeYoung has made interesting uh, comments on this following uh, Michael Heiser in, in many respects. Now, I don't agree with Michael Heiser on everything, but perhaps one day I'll do a video just on the Nephilim because there's so many cool dimensions uh, to, this, to this point. And Goliath is said to have scaled armor. Now, the Nephilim are often associated with six fingers. They have six fingers on each hand. And this is a tradition you find all over the world. I mean, it's pretty remarkable, actually. The idea that there are these supernatural type beings who seem kind of human, but aren't quite human. And they have six, fingered on their, six fingers on each hand. I mean, it's a really strange detail to be so consistent if there's nothing to it. I don't exactly know fully what to do with the tradition, except say that I think it does preserve something objective. Okay, so let's keep uh, keep going. Uh, language of the Divine Council. So remember what the Divine Council is. When I talk about the Divine Council, I'm just referring to uh, the language describing God's heavenly throne room as being associated with created beings who participate by God's providence in his management of the world. So we've got angels, and then we have men. Men are meant to be exalted over the angels. And you have different ranks of uh, authority in God's heavenly courtroom. And that's echoed throughout many human courts. You have those who actually participate in the ruling of the world, and then you have those who are ministers in the court. They're meant to bring messages. So you have, we might say, three tiers in the heavenly counts. You've got the God of Israel, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Then you have the children of God. And because the Son is the one through whom God rules the world, uh, sovereignty is associated with being a child of God. They are seated. Uh, they don't stand in the council. They sit in the council. That is a position of authority. You'll note the apostles received the Holy Eucharist while sitting. You will note that the divine council is placed in the context of a wedding feast. We read in Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah 24 to 25, that God's glory is before his elders at this messianic supper. And that language goes back to Exodus 24, where the glory of God is before the elders of Israel at the Feast of the Covenant. Remember, Jesus echoes the very language of Exodus 24 when he is instituting the Holy Eucharist. Uh, you know, we could keep going, but there are 70 elders there and Exodus 24, which is the number of the divine council because the word sod meaning council, meaning secret, sod has a gematria, a numerical value of 70. And I, that's, I think, the, is the principal reason 70 is, is, is the number of the council. And because every nation has a uh, archon, you have 70 nations in Genesis chapter 10. The, the nations are divided according to the number of the sons of God, as we're told in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, so, this is very, it's very simple to demonstrate that we have more than just an animal here in, uh, uh, here in or, um, Genesis 3 by pointing to the language of the divine council. So the divine council begins in Genesis 1. Now, please hear my word of clarification because I'm not saying it's not about the Trinity. In fact, I think it is about the Trinity. Genesis chapter 1, God says, let us make. This is the only time in Genesis 1 that he uses the language of let us. Now, I do think this is about the Trinity. 
the only reason there is such a thing as a divine council, which includes those other than the three divine persons, is because plurality and cooperation is inherent in the life of God. And I think we can see the fact that this is the Trinity rather than just generically the divine council by studying the way that God speaks throughout the scriptures. God consistently, or especially in Genesis, God will say something in his heart. He says something to himself. So we see in Genesis that God has this way of speaking where he is addressing himself. And this is thus the paradigm which is used for language of the divine council. Isaiah 6, we read that God says, who will go for us? And this is a divine council scene. God is speaking to a courtroom. So the language of the divine council is being used in Genesis 3 because God creates mankind to be included in his Trinitarian life. That is why God uses the let us phrase in Genesis 1 in the creation of man when he is making man as male and female. Man is one. The man created in the image and likeness of God is the human family, and the human family is one and many, just as God is one and three. The human family has uh, two sexes, male and female. The human family has many nations. So let us is again used in Genesis chapter 11. Uh, when God makes the human family a plenitude of nations. We also see that at the end of Genesis 3, God says uh, man has become as one of us. That is, man has attempted to seize a position in the heavenly courtroom, knowing good and evil. Knowing good and evil, this refers to having a position of authority. So the fact that this is used in exactly this context suggests that we are dealing with a heavenly being here. Psalm 82 echoes Genesis chapter 3 in a very striking way. Remember, what the devil says to Eve is, you shall not die, but shall be as gods. Divine life is associated with immortality, both in the scriptures and throughout antiquity. I read a paper a long time ago when I was doing um, my classics work at Notre Dame on what exactly the conceptual boundaries of godhood or, or, or divinity was in the ancient world. And uh, one of the conclusions made by the author was its immortality. And that's what we see in the Hebrew Bible as well. So you shall not die, but shall be as gods. Well, what does Psalm 82 says? say? Psalm 82 says, I said, you are gods. Nevertheless, as Adam, you shall die. That is the literal translation of the word. As Adam, you shall die. This is a reference to the prophecy of Genesis chapter 3. The prophecy of Genesis 3 uh, says that the devil will eat dust. He's going to be placed in the realm of the dead. Just as dust is associated with death, you shall return to dust. So the devil is said to be placed in that context. Isaiah 14, the devil, the king of Babylon. Babylon represents in a prototypical way all of the evil forces in the world, just as Zion represents all of the good in the world, according to the language of the prophets. And the one who started this game was the devil. So he is the king of Babylon. He is described as one who attempted to exalt himself as the foremost being in the heavenly council, above the stars of God. And yet he is humbled. He is placed in the grave where the Rephaim, these giants produced by the union of the Nephilim, rise up to greet him. The language in Isaiah 14 echoes uh, or anticipates the language of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, you have the messianic king, 
because in Isaiah 55, he fulfills the covenant made to David, so he's the Messiah. Messianic king humbles himself, but because of his humility, even unto death, he made his grave with a rich man, the prophet says. Even unto death, he is then exalted above the stars of God. He is freely given as a gift what the devil attempted to seize by force. So he may hold my servant to act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. That's a divine phrase, Isaiah 6. Uh, and he shall be exalted. So much to say about every one of those passages, but I do have a slide coming up in a future video specifically about the uh, language of Isaiah 14. So I won't say too much more about this at this point. Uh, but the language of Psalm 82 is a lex talionis. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That which you try to bring on somebody else is what you receive as your punishment yourself. If you if you essentially say, oh, this is what I'm going to do to my buddy over here. God says, oh, you think that's a good thing to do to a person? That'll be your punishment. Uh, so the devil brought death to the human family. So he himself is locked away in the grave. You are gods, just as he said, you shall be as gods. Nevertheless, as Adam, you shall die, just as he brought death to Adam's children. The sanctuary context of Genesis 2 and 3 also shows us that we're dealing with the divine council in these angelic realms. So Eden is on a mountain. Ezekiel 28 says that explicitly, that uh, there is a mountain on which the guardian cherub was placed. Uh, but we can deduce it from the fact that you have a spring which is welling up and then divides into four rivers in the Garden of Eden where it flows to the ends of the earth. Now, there's a downward flow here. Okay, Things flow downwards. Likewise, when Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, you have the consistent language of up and down being used in relation to their uh, uh, orientation to the, uh, uh, to the garden. They bring their sacrifices to the gate of Eden. Now, the divine council is something you find in the tabernacle and the temple. Remember why. The tabernacle and the temple is the palace, the throne room of God. God sits upon his throne. There's no independent judiciary here. God is the supreme magistrate in virtue of his being the executive. He sits on his throne and his counselors surround him. The language temp or the word temple simply is the word palace. His counselors are symbolized in the uh, uh, construction of the tabernacle and temple by the cherubim who stand beside him. And then also in the temple, there are, uh, there are angels under him that represents these two tiers of created being that I mentioned earlier. There's the ministering spirits who uphold his throne. There are also his um, assistants at court who ass uh, assist him with governing the world. Uh, in Zechariah chapter 4, we, we read about the two sons of oil. I think the two sons of oil are the two cherubim, which are, these are the statues of angels. They are made out of olive wood. Oil, it comes from olives. And this re this refers to the exaltation of mankind to the heavenly court. We've This is related to Romans 11. This is related to Revelation. I won't go into that any in any more detail at the moment, though. Topic for a future video, blah, blah, blah. Uh... And in uh, Deuteronomy 33, God comes to Sinai, Mount Sinai, with 10,000 upon 10,000 of his holy ones. In Daniel 7, God's throne is uh, approached on the clouds. Remember, cloud of incense, Leviticus 16. He has many of his heavenly counselors there. And Isaiah 6, where does he see 
the divine courtroom? Oh, he sees it in the temple. I think we often read that as Isaiah was caught up into the heavenly temple. But I think we are meant to read this as Isaiah goes to the temple, the temple built on earth, and it becomes a conduit for his access to the divine courtroom. So the fact that we have the serpent appearing in this context, when the language of divine counsel is explicitly used, tells us we are dealing with a heavenly being. Nakash, the bright one, simply underscores that which we should already have inferred and deduced. Finally, let's not forget that angelic beings are explicitly mentioned in Genesis 3. There are cherubim guiding the way into the Garden of Eden. And this is paralleled by the language of sin crouching at the door at the bottom of Mount Eden. Cain has to master sin. He's called to master sin who crouches at the door. This is the decision point. Will you walk after the way of God? Remember, the language of uh, halakha comes from the word walk. God says, walk before me and be perfect. Walk in the way of the Lord. Well, we read about the cherubim guarding the way into the Garden of Eden. This is the decision point. How then shall we live? Shall we live in a way which represents the cherubim? That's, we, that's the language used in the divine liturgy. Or shall we live as the serpent? We read in Romans 7 that sin deceived me, Paul speaking as a representative of Israel. That is an echo of what Eve says. Eve says the serpent deceived me. In Romans 7, Paul is speaking of Israel as the bride of God. Sin deceived me, but Christ kills sin, condemned sin in the flesh, uh, and takes human family as his bride. So the language of sin has, in certain ways, a capital S. It refers both to the devil personally and every act which aligns with what he wants. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin, Jesus says. So we have both the concept and the person being referred to in uh, the Gospel of John. This is the context where he says, from the very beginning, Satan was a murderer. Well, when was he a murderer? Well, Genesis chapter 4, Cain becomes a slave to sin, where he does what the devil encouraged him to do, either implicitly or explicitly. There are some traditions which talk about this as an explicit temptation, just as Eve was tempted explicitly. Uh, God does in Genesis 4 what he did in Genesis chapter 3. He asks Cain to tell him, what have you done? He gives them an opportunity to explicitly make known his sin and to repent it from it. If you speak it in a way which is intelligible, you know it to the degree, uh, you know it, you know its nature, and thus you can turn from what you know to be evil. So, uh, I'm sorry, if, I don't know how, how much the dog snoring is going to be on the, uh, uh, on the audio. I really am sorry if it's disruptive um, for you, uh, but, you know... I can only do so much. I hope to see you uh, tomorrow at uh, at the live stream. Oh, I forgot to start this with a prayer today. Um, but I hope to see you tomorrow on the live stream. Uh, it's at 10. By tomorrow, I mean Wednesday at 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, approximately. And uh, please do keep me in your prayers. And by God's will, I will talk to you again soon.